So we are doing our final uh, sermon this, uh, this time around, at least, of looking at women in the Bible. And uh, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that we looked at the super obscure story of these five women who, uh, whose uh, efforts really reshaped the law to give women rights. And, uh, well, <clears throat> this story is not a ton more common. I mean, it's a bit more common because it's, it's attached to the Samson narrative. It's part of that. But this is the part that nobody reads of the whole Samson story. Um, so nobody knows it, basically. <clears throat> but uh, if we dive into the story, it gets, it gets pretty interesting. So uh, let's remind ourselves of the context of where we are. So we're in Judges, the book of Judges. So the Israelites had just been uh, ran away as slaves in Egypt. They'd done their thing in the wilderness for 40 years, and they came to this land, that, uh, the promised land, right? And so in the book of Joshua, the book right before it, it's an interesting comparison with it. So in the book of Joshua, right before it, You've got this military conquest. You've got them coming in and, and, and frankly, brutally massacring the indigenous people there and taking it over as their land. It's this complete, uh, it's this blaze of military might. It's just this complete takeover, right? Um, However, we are in the book of Judges, not of Joshua. And the whole point of the book of Judges is the exact opposite, is that that Joshua was not successful because in Judges, the Israelites are this little tiny nation in the land that are getting kicked around by the stronger nations around them. They didn't wipe them all out. They're being bullied by them now. And this Samson story fits squarely within this little narrative that we've got here about victimization. And so this scene, as we saw today, opens with the Israelites and they're being subjected by... being subjected, subjugated by the Philistines and have been for a generation or so. And we open on to this image of a man and a wife, a man named Manoah. And she's barren. She can't get pregnant, but meets this angel and says, you're going to be pregnant and your son will become a Nazarite, meaning uh, it's just a name of a group that was kind of set apart of you shouldn't drink alcohol or, or um, eat anything that's ritually impure or shave your head. And he will be the one that will begin to re- rescue us from those Philistines that are oppressing us. And so this woman ran and filled in her husband. And Manoah prayed to God saying, please send this angel back so I can ask him, you know, how we're supposed to raise the boy despite the fact that she just told him. Um, And then we've got an angel, comes back, right? Tells him all these directions again. And then tells him, send up this burnt offering. Offer up this burnt sacrifice. And this flame shot up from the altar and the angel disappeared with it. And Manoah finally made the connection that he was an angel and was like, we're gonna die, ah! And then his wife was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, because... God won't strike us down because he, like, just promised us that we're going to have a baby, and you kind of have to be alive for that to happen. So then I presume nine months later, Samson was born, and we're back to the part of the story that people actually read. All right. 
So the most riveting aspect of this for me is these, these relationships that go on in, in the power dynamics between the characters. Because So like, consider naming, right? Naming. Manoa has a name, obviously. But his wife is unnamed. And this is a dynamic we see a lot in the Bible, both, both testaments of men t- tend to be named more than women, and it reflects this valuation, this, uh, how society thinks about who's worthy of having a name, having their name remembered, of having an independent identity. Like, uh, you might remember this from, you know, uh, back in the day of, you used to say, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Colin Cushman, right? You're familiar with that, right? And so, re- um, immediately on being married, any identity that the individual identity that the wife had is now kind of subsumed. It's collapsed into the husband's identity that literally erases her independence, right? And, and that same dynamic is at work right here in this story. It, it may or may not be an accident that the narrator doesn't give the woman a name, but when a name imbues identity and worth and control and power, it's not innocent that she goes unnamed throughout this entire story. This entire really long story, as we apparently heard. Um, <laughs> but, but did you catch something else as well? The angel doesn't have a name, right? And, and it's not just the author forgot, because it, it, the, the woman explicitly mentions to Manoah that he never told me his name. And then Manoah tries to get the name out of him, and the angel explicitly refuses to give it to him. You wouldn't understand it. Names signify control and identity, and the angel refuses to give that up to the one character who the narrator thinks is worthy to have a name. And in remaining explicitly unnamed, this angel then aligns himself with the woman. And he does the same positioning thing, this aligning himself with the woman. He does that over and over in the narrative. And see, one of the things that I personally get when I read this narrative is uh, Manoah's arrogance. Right? The angel only ever appeared to the woman. Only ever appeared to the woman. And she was the one who had the most intimate contact with him. And yet... Manoah doesn't value her intellect or experience or memory, for that matter. She recounts everything that the angel said to her. And what was Manoah's response? Hey, God, come on back. Uh, I want to hear it from you, rather than her. Um, He fundamentally doesn't trust his wife, right? He doesn't trust what she said. Uh, Maybe he doesn't trust that she could be the bearer of revelation. The, the receiver of revelation instead of him. To my taste, this is profoundly condescending and arrogant, right? But, and, and then to take all this one step further, I wonder if it's because of his arrogance that the angel doesn't really do anything for him at any point. Like, the angel and women, the two of them actually have secrets from Manoah. First of all, the angel only appears to the woman. Even when Manoah is asking the angel to come back, the angel doesn't come to him. It comes to her, and then she brings him in. And then when Manoah demands that he comes back and he himself talks to the angel, the angel gave him no new information, like zero. Like It, it seems to me that the angel's rather irritated because it's like, you came in, made me come down here and show up 
just for me to tell you exactly what I already told her. What the heck? Um, And so I could see him being rather irritated. And Manoah gets nothing new, just repeating exactly what his wife already said. And now he believes it because it comes from the angel instead of her. Classy. Great. And then then this is fascinating, too. The, The angel and the woman, they have this literal secret as well. It's a literal secret because when the woman tells her husband how they're supposed to raise their kid, right, as a Nazarite, as somebody set apart, right, part of this group, she says, you know, don't drink alcohol, don't eat unclean foods. But she leaves out a detail. She leaves out the detail, don't cut his hair. And when the angel repeats the directions for Manoah, nothing about the hair. And I don't know if you remember the story of Samson. That's the whole point of the story is don't cut Samson's hair, right? That's exactly what Delilah does at the end. She snips off his hair, and that's how they get them. That's how they are able to kill Samson is because he lost his power that's in his hair and not cutting his hair. And this is the very secret that Manoah is not privy to. It's just between the woman and the angel, and, and look, here's the other thing. Manoah's not just arrogant. He is really, really dense. I mean, just right. So right at the beginning of this story, like almost the first thing his wife says to him is, I saw somebody who looked like an angel. And he, he waits until the very end. He doesn't even realize the possibility that it was an angel until the very, very end of the story when there's all this pyrotechnic stuff and he vanishes and he's like, oh, maybe it was an angel. Ah, we're going to die, right? And he doesn't get it through his thick head, even though she told him at the very beginning that, oh, hey, this might be an angel. Um, And then when he does figure out that it's an angel, he's completely useless. He's a blathering idiot. He's like, oh, we're going to die. We're going to die. We've seen the holy. And, of course, his wife, again, his unnamed wife steps up and saves the day. And she brings forth this fine theological reasoning. You know, God would not kill us if God told us to have a baby. That just doesn't work. She's got the brains. She's got the logic. She holds it together while he's freaking out, right? This is the woman we are looking at today. So in short, when I hear this story, frankly, I, I personally hear a story about human worth and dignity, about a woman who has it all together and, frankly, a, a bumbling, arrogant chauvinist, uh, which also sounds like his son, Samson, uh, so I guess it must get it from his dad. Um, And then an angel who aligns himself with the woman. And so to my taste, this story invites us to reconsider exactly who can be the bearer of revelation, the site of encounter with the divine, right? Especially those who we would normally overlook because her husband overlooked her because of how he valued women or more accurately didn't value women. Yet she, not him, was the bearer of revelation, was the one the angel came and spoke to. 
She was the site of the encounter with the divine, the the mediator who was privileged to have access, to have an intimate encounter with the holy. Uh, This reminds me of something from our tradition. My own theology is very much in the camp of what's called liberation theology. Um, and so the, it started with these, uh, the campesinos, these uh, poor migrant farmers uh, or peasant farmers in Latin America mid-20th century and, and with the uh, black Americans in the United States. And, and, and this liberation theology is this way of thinking about the divine which emphasizes that God is for the most marginalized and oppressed. That God has this particular stake in helping make sure that they're cared for. And so liberation theologians point to texts like don't oppress the orphan and the widow and the Exodus story of the runaway slaves and, and, help, and uh, Jesus telling us to make sure to take care of the least of these, right? And what catches my eye about this <clears throat> is that liberation theologians claim that somehow In the poor, we find a unique site of encounter with the holy. In some special way, we see God more clearly through the lives and the beings of poor folks. And other marginalized groups have have latched onto this and really expanded how we think of who is the poor, and so it includes, for example, people of color or LGBTQ folks or immigrants. And in some way, these groups have some particular and distinct insight into the nature of the divine. And that is what this story reminds me of. Whereas in this story, The unnamed wife has a particular insight into the divine, right? And has an encounter with the divine and is blessed from the interaction and and yet was written off by her husband because she was a woman, right? In that same way, liberation theology insists that the very people that you write off as expendable or unworthy or uneducated or unenlightened, these very people can be those who point us most truly to God. In our tradition, we might use the phrase, seeing Jesus in the face of another. Or maybe more relatable for some, seeing that of God in the other. When we write off others as unworthy or unimportant or not worth our time, we write off that of God in the other. Which beckons us to the question, at least for me, quite disturbing question, of who are you unlikely to see the divine in? And especially, who does society say is excluded from access to the divine? Who do I count out of the possibility that I will experience God through this person? And then how do we, as those seeking to faithfully follow Christ, how do we work against that? So may your eyes be trained to see the divine and beauty in everything around you. May you see that of God that is in everything. And may you challenge yourself 
to encounter God through those very people who you would normally write off. May it be so.